The Sony Group is pervasive. From making Spider-Man movies to providing life insurance, from making PlayStation game consoles to owning record labels, the reach of Sony is wide. The story of Sony's starts in World War II Japan. It is a story that starts with two engineers. Welcome to Talking of Giants, the podcast that talks about the stories of giants from various fields. Our story this week starts in Japan in the 1930s. The Morita family was helping put them through school in exchange for work around the house. Their biggest challenge as a family would come with the rise in propaganda in Japan. Propaganda to hate everything Western and see Japan as the ultimate answer. A wide-ranging manipulation that would lead to disastrous consequences of war. Akio Morita was extremely lucky to avoid the worst of the consequences of the war. He was the eldest son of Kyuzemon Morita and Shuko Morita. The Morita family's ancestors made their social status and fortunes from the sake business. For many generations, the first son would take over the sake business and help preserve it. It had worked for many generations, till the time of Akio Morita's grandfather. The family had gotten too hands-off with their business. Salaried external managers, for whom it did not matter whether the business flourished or not, were given all the power. The family focused on spending the fortunes and acquiring precious products of luxury and heritage. Akio Morita's father was called back from college in the middle of his education. The family business was failing and he had to get it back on track. It was time he became Kyuzemon Morita. Kyuzemon was not Akio Morita's father's name at birth. Kyuzemon was the name given to the first son when he would take over as the head of the Morita family. Once Akio Morita's father became Kyuzemon, the task was urgent. Restoration had to be done and done quickly. They risked losing everything they had built over many generations. As the 13th Kyuzemon, Akio Morita's father helped bring things on track. With a heavy heart, he sold off a few family heirlooms. But the very expensive heirlooms that had put the family on the path of ruin would actually save them. The heirlooms had only gotten more valuable with time and helped raise the money to save the sake business of the Moritas. Neno Himatsu, the brand of sake under which the Moritas made sake, was thus saved. Having saved the family from such distress, Kyuzemon knew well to make sure his son was adequately trained from a young age. He was, after all, the next Kyuzemon in line after his father retired. Akio, unlike his father, had a comfortable upbringing. His house had all the latest amenities. They had a tennis court in their house that was across the street from the Toyotas. Even as Japan was being radicalized, the Morita household had luxury products of American make. They owned a Model T Ford to get through town on whatever could be called roads at the time. They had a General Electric washing machine and a Westinghouse refrigerator. 
their father later got himself a Buick car. In case this feels normal, let me remind you, this was the 1930s. They not only had a 4T, but also had a washing machine and a refrigerator. It was a delicate balance of being traditional enough to keep up social stature, but modern enough to preserve it into the future. In this kind of environment, Akio Morita had a lot of space to bloom. His uncle who studied in France also brought in a different perspective into his life through the photos and stories he had from his days in France. Of all the appliances in the Morita household, one could argue that a particular one could have been more important than the others in Akio Morita's growth. It was a mechanical phonograph. His mother was a fan of Western music and used the phonograph a lot. In fact, when the electric phonograph came to Japan, one of the first was purchased by the Morita family. Building radios on their own became a favorite pastime in Japan and there were publications that would elaborate on how to do the same. The tinkering fever caught young Morita too. He got to tinkering in his room. He tried to make a recording of himself and then tried to play it back on the phonograph. Though he was not too successful in making a finished product, it created an interest in him to pursue science. Akio Morita, while bright as a child, was not very interested in his classes. Subjects like English and Japanese classics did not matter to him. It was then that he faced a clear but tough choice. Science streams in high schools were very competitive and Morita would not get in unless he had excellent scores. Faced with this choice, Morita decided to give his all to getting through these subjects so that he could enter his desired stream of science. With the help of tutors and a lot of consistent work, he did. But high school bored Morita too with certain subjects like botany that did not really interest him. He did endure them and looked forward to studying physics. On the suggestion of a teacher in high school, he met with Tsune Saburo Asada, an expert in applied physics at the Osaka Imperial University. Young Morita was very much impressed by the jovial professor. Morita was surprised by how open the professor was to listen to him and understand what he knew. Morita knew that Asada was a rarity in Japan, where teachers were accorded a high degree of respect and stood high above the students they taught. Very much impressed by Professor Asada, Morita joined Osaka Imperial University instead of the more privileged universities in Tokyo or Kyoto. By the time Morita entered college, however, things, things were quite different. The lab that Professor Asada worked in was under the control of the Japanese Navy. It was wartime and all the resources had to be put to use. This created a huge opportunity and a huge problem. The opportunity was quite straightforward. The lab researching for the Navy meant that it produced things for real-world applications. It was an experience that was much more valuable than the traditional experience of using basic circuits and working one's way up. Morita was learning from one of the best in the field and was first-hand exposed to the different cutting-edge technologies that were being developed in Asada's lab. Professor Asada was so proficient that reporters would often quiz him about various questions. Asada even had a weekly column answering such questions. When Professor Asada was busy, Morita would, on the rare occasion, write the column in his stead. 
He once even wrote about how nuclear power could be harnessed to create a very powerful weapon. But this was all from the perspective of Japan. A Japan that did not yet know how far ahead United States was or about something called the Manhattan Project. The project that would produce the first deadly nuclear weapons. While the opportunity of working in the lab was indirectly created by the war, there was a very real problem it created. It was a war, after all. No young man would be safe. Morita was no exception. He was still in college and not yet drafted. Being drafted would mean Morita would have to go where he was assigned and would have no control over what kind of work he would do to contribute to the military. But thanks to the Navy's association with the university's lab, Morita had access to a few Navy officers. One of the Navy officers offered him a solution. There was a way to get into a short-term Navy assignment that would entail technical duties instead of working in the line of fire. It was a tempting offer that Morita would have taken up, if not for another Navy officer's advice. The second officer explained to Morita that though the nature of work was technical, increasingly the field had been changing. The ones who were from the technical side of things were assigned to operate radars and other newer technologies in the ships. This would mean that though the task was seemingly simple, it would still be in the equipment going to war. It could get deadly real soon given how intense the war was getting. The other option the officer offered to Morita was tricky. Sign up to the Navy for a lifetime. While that should have been a clear uh, no thank you from Morita's side, there was more to the offer. He was offered to be put back into the lab as a Navy enlistee. So he would be on the Navy's payroll and work at the lab. But it would mean that Morita would have to commit to life in the Navy. Now, three options stood before the young Japanese lad who grew up in a very comfortable setting in a respected family at the top of social order. One, join the Navy as a lifer and get sent back to the lab. Two, join the short-term technical division and work in the increasingly dangerous Navy equipment. Three, wait for the automatic government draft to come in and face a very uncertain assignment, which could easily put him much more directly in the face of danger. Morita decided to pick the best of the options he had. He enlisted in the permanent route of the Navy and came back to the lab to finish his degree. The Navy ordered him to move to a base in Yokosuka. But the optical division there was Sapa. Morita's assignment luckily was to make aerial photographs from planes better. Static electric currents were destroying the aerial photographs and he was assigned to solve the problem. So Morita requested to be sent back to Professor Asada's lab to continue his work, which he got the permission for. Not only did he successfully work on the project, he also made it his senior year thesis. The real adult-like responsibilities for Morita would begin after his graduation. He was given a four-month military training, at the end of which he was accorded the rank of a lieutenant. He was in charge of a unit that was evacuating to Zushi, a small town that overlooked the Sagami Bay. 
The unit was working on developing thermal guidance weapons and night vision gun sights. Morita's position at this base was the equivalent of a deck officer on a ship. One of his duties was to take care of the procurement of food for his unit. His time in this unit would have quite a few examples of how he liked to go against the rules if he believed that it would better get the team to where they wanted to be. The simpler of these rules that was broken was related to food. It was always hard to get enough food during wartime. A subordinate of Morita's came up with an idea. He made a deal with a local fisherman. The deal was to provide them fish in exchange for sake out of the navy rations that Morita's team had. Now, this was normal, nothing too bad. But Morita knew there still was not enough food for the young team to eat. So he wrote to his family. The company that Akio Morita's family owned was not just famous for sake. It was also known for the soy and miso they produced. He instructed his family to send a barrel of soy and a barrel of miso with a stamp indicating that it was for Navy use. Since the company supplied to the Navy too, this unauthorized shipment would pass by without much problem. The smuggled in barrels would have definitely gotten Morita in trouble. But the year was 1945, the peak of the war, and Morita decided to prioritize wits and survival over rules. But this was the meeker of the offenses. The next one, well, the next one is a little trickier, a very slippery slope. As 1945 progressed, the air raids on Japan became more frequent. From the very start, Morita's team was located in a place that the B-29 bombers passed on their way to bombing the cities up ahead. So they were very much in danger. But so was the whole of Japan. Morita strongly believed that their location would not be bombed for two reasons. They were located at the bottom of a cliff and it would be hard to bomb them. Two and more importantly, the Americans very likely did not know of this unit's existence. They were not a highly strategic unit anyway. So Morita called his team to brief them on the first order of business when alarms went off that air raids were happening in surrounding areas. Morita's instruction to the team about what to do in case the air raid alarms went off was very clear. Do nothing. Sleep. Because the Navy regulations meant that when the alarms went off, the people in the unit had to wake up because the raids happened at night a lot dress themselves in uniform and man the water pumps to handle subsequent fires. But Morita decided this was not necessary. They would rather be well rested and alert for research and work the next day because the bombing was almost continuous. If the unit was bombed, he told them, there wasn't anything they could do anyways. The good leader part of this act was he himself moved into the villa that housed the unit. As a lieutenant, he had initially occupied a hotel room a small walk away. But to show solidarity with his team, he moved into the villa himself. He was exposing his team to a not-so-black-swan event, but at least he had some skin in the game. The team Morita worked with, and the whole armed forces really, knew that Japan's doom was inevitable at this point. But the research carried on. Morita, much younger than the other researchers, was in a tricky position. He had to answer to researchers and academics, both civilian and military, 
about what the Navy's views were on any particular development. He had to maintain a certain command because he represented the Navy, but also had to know when to defer to them on matters that they were the experts in. This reminded him of all the training in diplomacy he went through under his father. Before he was even a teenager, he was given a tour of their sake factory. He was shown the tasting and spitting of sake to gauge the quality. He was asked many a time to join his father when company officials came home to report to him and had discussions. Morita learned carefully by listening and observing about what the right behavior towards different people in the chain of command was. He was supposed to be the next Cusimon, after all. With that learning well ingrained in him, Morita would reply to the researchers and academics in a style befitting a good leader and a representative of the Navy. It was one of the people he met through these interactions that would change his life. 13 years his senior, Masaru Ibuka, was fast becoming a good friend of Morita's. The company Masaru Ibuka owned, the Japan Measuring Instrument Company, created an amplifier to detect submarines. When, sub when suspended from an airplane, it would amplify the signals to find submarines that were up to 30 meters below the surface. Ibuka's amplifier performed astonishingly well in the trials, but they could barely be put to use because by the time it was ready, Japan did not really have aircraft to spare. It was on the defense. Collapse seemed imminent. If the war did end and the chaos that follows war did ensue, what would happen to their lives? The two young men, Morita and Ibuka, wondered. They did not know it then, but their minds were working towards creating what would become the world-renowned Sony Corporation. But before the end of the war, there were still weeks ahead of bombing and planes falling from the sky. Talking of Giants is a podcast hosted by Vikhyat Mutyala. The theme soundtrack was composed by Bertie Ashley. You can reach me Vikhyat Mutyala at talkingofgiants at gmail.com. That is talkingofgiants at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the show.